Uh, this week is the Introduction to Values-Based Halakha, Part 2. And this week, I think even more than last week, I am somewhat uncertain that that name is the right name for what we are doing. Uh, and you will see in a few minutes exactly why I think it is not necessarily the right name. So maybe I should like offer a reward for anybody who can think of a better name than Values-Based Halakha, something that is catchy, something you can put on a t-shirt, um, to which I will have the rights. <laughs> so if you think of something, let me know. Um, Last week we looked at philosophy of law in general. This week we're going to be looking at particular case examples of uh, halakhic texts that I think um, reflect or can, the, the value-based approach can in some ways be helpful uh, uh, in reading them. Um, that I should say that putting this together I, I found like quite difficult. Um, I've seen a lot of uh, I've seen a lot of this practice, but I haven't actually seen it compiled in any serious way. Um, and so this is kind of like my first attempt to kind of encapsulate all of what I think I understand about the way you're supposed to read halakha into a few simple principles. Um, and I'm sure that there are problems with it. Um, I'm kind of relying on you to, to say where there are problems because I think, first of all, it is important to encapsulate it, and second of all, the encapsulation that I have is kind of a draft. So just that as a, as a kind of warning. Um, and I'm sorry that we're in the big trash as opposed to downstairs as well. Um, so let me start off by this. There are a couple of principles in values in the values-based approach that I think you kind of have to buy into for the approach itself. One is to say that all halakhic sources, all halakhic sources, everything that you construe as halakha going from the Torah up until modern-day responsa, it's concerned with three kinds of things. One is normative practice. The second is formal considerations, and I'll be more specific what I mean by formal considerations. And the third is values, and I think the values one is going to be the most amorphous, the most difficult to talk about. If you want a short version of that, let's say norms, forms, and values. I couldn't think of a word that rhymed with norms and forms that meant values, so it's just going to be the odd one out, like planes, trains, and automobiles. Okay. But that helps you remember it. Um, the reason these three things are important is because when you are writing a halakhic work, you are in some ways trying to um, claim uh, authority for your work. Um, and these are three different avenues through which a halakhic decisor or a text can claim authority for work, either through normative practices, through some kind of uh, formal designation that this is a halakhic work which should be taken seriously, and also through values, either the person's values or society's values. Um, so that's kind of the, the rubric that I'm using. Um, a good halakhic work will very often score highly on each of the, in each of those three realms. It will do a good job of appealing to, um, to the public in each of those realms. Um, however, I should also say sometimes authors don't know that they're doing this. Um, and that's the other important piece that we're going to have to think about is when you read a halakhic text, the text is not always going to tell you in what way it is, it is appealing to those things. And so the reason this rubric is important is that it kind of gives you a window in, into inquiring about a text. So let's, yeah. This might be where you're going anyway, but can you give examples of what you mean by those three categories? Yeah. So I'll give you. I'll give you. I'll start. Let's talk about norms first of all. Normative practice. Right. This is simply asking, what do people actually do? What's actually going on in society? Right. It's important um, to take into account uh, any you know particular minhagim, particular customs that a society might have. So like for example, the presence of a mechitza. 
the fact that in a society most women are not participating in services, are not praying on a regular basis. Those things matter. Um, or, as we looked at last time, that most American Jews are investing in the stock market. Right? These are all normative practices. This is what our community does. And the question of community is kind of, we have to think about what we mean by community, certainly. But in some sense of community, um, that is going to matter. It matters. I mean, you can, you can probably think of some of the reasons it matters on your own. But certainly, if you write a tshuva that pays no attention to what people are actually doing, it's very likely that your decision will in some way be overturned or simply ignored. Um, this is going back to something, I think I said this in previous week, that when Moshe Feinstein, he was asked why it is that he became this amazing decisor of halacha. People kept writing him, asking him questions. He said, well, people asked me a few questions, and I guess they liked what I had to say. So they kept writing me more questions. So if you are, in some ways, dealing with people um, in the situation that they are in, um, it's likely to help you gain traction. Um, more than that, I would say normative activity, and, 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 and I'm saying normative activity, not as a value. Simply, what do people do? Not why do people do it, but simply, what do people do? What people do helps them form a sense of community as well. We define ourselves as the people who do Shabbat, or do Shabbat in a particular way. Say, we're the people who do Shabbat by not using electricity on Shabbat. Um, so this helps us define ourselves in relation to others. Um, that being said, it's also important to think about because people very often confuse normative behavior with behavior that has been around since Moshe himself. Um, and just to give a very small example of this, in the Penn community, if you ask students at Penn, what is the uh, what are the what are the you know kind of accepted customs for the minyan here, what they do and what they don't do, the answers you will get today are probably very different from the answers you got four years ago. In that students think like, well, if it was here when I was here in my freshman year, then it's always been here. Um, or if my parents did it, then everyone must have done it. Um, so it's important to keep that in mind, but it also is one of the reasons why normative practices are so important, because people give them a kind of longer, uh, a longevity which they don't necessarily have. Um, that being said, uh, I would say normative practices can also um, be seen in a negative light, that is to say, you can think about how do I legitimate current practices, right? It, one, thing, one thing a chuva can be doing is trying to kind of post facto give a rationalization for why people do a certain thing. Um, or, to put it another way, how do I kind of legislate a practice which I'm doing which I don't necessarily think is appropriate, but I would like a halakhic basis for it. But in some ways, okay, normative, uh, normative, normative practices are important. That's number one. Um, the second thing is a little bit uh, more complicated. It has two parts. This is formal considerations. Um, I mean a couple things by this. One is that different texts have different ideas about what constitutes an appropriate argument. Um, and that notion changes pretty drastically between texts. Um, so to give you an example, um, in the Chuvah we looked at last week with Moshe Feinstein, in order to make the point that um, shareholders, um, that is, it is okay to be a stockholder in a corporation, um, he makes an argument on the basis of older halakhic authorities on the basis of Rishonim, medieval authorities, um, also makes rational arguments. He doesn't just say it. Um, the form that he is writing in, the form that are, the responsa, does not allow him to simply state his approach without citing older material. So that is an example of the way in which the form kind of um, delineates exactly how a point must be made. Now, I should say, if a rabbi is giving an argument or giving a, a, a decision to a, a person in private, that process might look different. They might provide fewer sources. They might say, well, in your case, I think we can be lenient, but I'm not going to give you a whole written opinion. 
Um, there are some forms of Jewish legal literature which provide no arguments whatsoever. The Mishnah, for example, provides very little by way of argumentation. It simply says, this is the halacha, and leaves it at that. Um, so it's important to keep that in mind. The reason we need to think about formal considerations is because part of the way you recognize something as being halachic in the first place is because you say, oh, it has abided by certain criteria, therefore it is a halachic, therefore it is a halachic text. Um, this is, just to go back to something we were talking about last week about, about legal positivism, that there has to be a kind of rule of recognition. There has to be some kind of way that you designate this as being halachic and this being non-halachic. Um, and this is kind of, this is something which grows out of the different genres of halakha that we have. Um, it also, and this is not a small thing to think about, if you write halakha in the same style as the previous generation, you allow for a conversation between yourself and that generation as well. So it is no longer just me saying, I think you should do this, but rather I am in conversation with the sources that came before me who said something else, and so we are kind of advancing a larger Torah project. Um, which involves those previous generations, and it can involve new generations as well. Um, so this is like this is an important um, and not not insignificant consideration. So let's like just give some examples of like things you might be looking at when you look at local sources and you try to read them, um, and you need to pay attention to uh, the formal that they that they employ. So the Talmud, for example. So how does the Talmud use the Torah? How does the Talmud use biblical sources? What's your sense of it? Uh, citing verses um, to support what it's saying. Right. So the Talmud feels pr pretty free to um, to quote Torah um, as evidence. The ways in which it quotes Torah can be expected to be um, sometimes quite removed from the literal meaning of the verse. And this is part of what we understand as being part of like the Talmudic argument form. We also understand there's a kind of hierarchy among the rabbis in the Talmud, right? That it is important from the Talmud's perspective that the Tanaim, um, the earlier generation of, of rabbis, the ones who have approximately up until the beginning of the, uh, the beginning of the, of the fourth century, fourth uh, century, um, that they cannot be contradicted by later sages, by Amoraim. So these are kind of the um, rules of the game from the Talmud's perspective. Um, there's also the Shlosh Esrimidot, that there are these 13 principles um, by which, at least theoretically, the Talmud um, reads Torah, uh, reads different texts that it's supposed to abide by. So all these things kind of feature in the way we read Talmud um, and shape the way that the Talmud arrives at certain decisions. There are only certain moves that it, that it makes, and it makes them those along these lines. I just say as well, the Talmud is a particularly difficult example because it is such a multi-layered text figuring out the rules of the Talmud within the several generations of the Talmud that are all stacked into what we now have as a text of 1.86 million words, as Yaakov Elman likes to quote, um, is difficult to do. It's difficult to find those. But they're there, and it's important to pay attention to that. Um, it's also important, just to, one last thing, is that the Mishnah stays at the center of the Talmud. Like it's, it's kind of doesn't need to be said, but the Mishnah is very central to the Talmudic project. Okay. Um, this is slightly different from what the Goanim do, right? The Goanim um, are also invested in the Mishnah, but they're not yet reading the Talmud as an entirely authoritative text. The Goanim, sorry, I should say, the Goanim. So after the after the Talmudic period ends around the end of the sixth century, um, there exists in Iraq, which it's now Iraq because it's Islamic. Um, there exists in Iraq um, leader sages that call themselves the Goanim. Uh, they exist primarily in two academies. When Baghdad is founded, they move to Baghdad for the most part. Um, and they continue traditions of learning. They have yeshivot. Um, 
Because each, each, has a, each has a head. Sadja Gaon is one of the famous um, Gaonim. They start to write halakhic treatises. They're the first people to do it. Um, they're primarily Arabic speaking. They write a lot in Arabic. A lot of their stuff is in the Cairo Geniza. Um, a few times, they say, at least, they insert comments into the Talmud. But for the most part, what they do is they kind of discuss the Mishnah and use the Talmud as a way of discussing the Mishnah. So they treat the Talmud as a kind of conversation which has taken place relatively recently, but it's not a code in itself. The Talmud is not its own code yet. It is simply a way of elaborating on the Mishnah. Um, this is somewhat different um, when we move into the period of the, uh, of the Rishonim. The Rishonim, let's say that that's the next age. This is like uh, the Middle Ages, let's say, from around the 11th century onwards. Um, I'm not sure if we have an exact date. There's some overlap between the Gonim and the Rishonim. But so the Rishonim also have this sense of um, the Talmud is authoritative, the way we interpret it matters, and we also need to understand what the Talmud's bottom line is. If you've looked at the Talmud, the Talmud's actually very difficult to understand, difficult to know what the Talmud thinks is the bottom line, because it often just ends a conversation without giving a conclusion. But the Rishonim are very interested in that, and they, they don't argue with the Gemara. In the same way that the Amoraim don't argue with the Tanaim, the Rishonim don't argue with the, the Amoraim. And to go one step further, the Achronim, who let's say um, are the last 500 years of rabbis, are not as interested in the argument of Rishonim. So these are all kind of rules of the game. There's much more to say about exactly these rules, but this is part of it as well. Okay. Um, let's go on to the last, sorry, the second part of, uh, of formal considerations is beyond the form of argument, there's also something, there's also kind of generic limitation. There's a, there, there are several genres of halakhic writing. And you have different expectations about what is going to show up in those genres. Um, and this, this is something that rabbis need to think about when they put down, um, when they put halakha in writing. So one thing, for example, as I mentioned, is that the Mishnah is not going to provide you with arguments. Um, it is also concerned very much with concision and memorizability. Um, so the Mishnah is not going to provide you with every single detail in the way that a later code might. Um, a commentary on the Rambam or a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch is going to provide you with much more detail because it exists as a written text. It's not interested in having people memorize it. Um, and it, it's fine existing kind of um, on the page and can speak at length. Um, it also means, so I'll give you another example, the responsa are much more interested in argumentation than, uh, than say, the Mishnah. Um, the Talmud has several layers, we talked about before. Um, and also, one other genre of halakha writing we have is like books of mitzvot. Um, books of mitzvot, which are interested in kind of compiling lists of 613 mitzvot, are not necessarily going to provide you with every single detail in every law because they're interested in a larger project, almost a literary project, which is providing you with this list of 613 mitzvot. So each of those projects has, has its own concerns, and the concerns of that project will, uh, will, will affect the way that the writing comes out. Okay, we'll, we'll see this in some examples of this later. Um, the last thing that we need to think about, besides norms and forms, is values. The values is the most amorphous thing to talk about. Um, it's amorphous partially um, because it sits on top of life itself, right? There are so many different things which you can call a value. Uh, many of the things that we think about as values overlap. So for example, I can say there's a value to preserve human life, and there is a value um, that no harm come to all humans. Um, which overlap quite a bit. Um, you can say that there is a value to human life. Um, and you can also say that um, householders have a right to defend themselves in their houses at night. Um, and those are both values. One is much smaller and more specific than the first, but they also have quite a bit of overlap. Yeah. 
Why wouldn't you call the one of them the, the broader one of value and the more specific one a feature of that value or a or an application of that value? It's a good question. Um, partially because I don't think that the halakhic services that we have clearly dictate a kind of set number of super values or like values and then dictate features. Meaning the way that these show up in the various legal literatures that we have indicates that they're all used as kind of principles that can be invoked and that there isn't a strict hierarchy between them and a strict, strict uh, differentiation between them. Um, what is what is set in stone or what is set in, in text are kind of the applications based on those values, based on those principles. But the hierarchy is the main thing. I think it's a question. Um, other would questions? Say, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, would you say Excuse that? Speak louder. Sorry. Um, generally, like very generally speaking, that the values are implicit in the texts rather than explicit in the texts. And if they're implicit, then why can't we just go ahead and categorize them the way that makes sense? Um, so the values can be explicit. Sometimes they are and sometimes they're not. I think something else we need to think about, and I think this is part of what it means to be reading halakha through a values-based perspective, is to assume that there are more values in the text than that the text is necessarily invoking, that it will, it will often not invoke particular values. Um, So we can think of some like very big values. Here's here's like a, maybe one of the biggest ones. Human beings should treat each other as me as ends and not means. I wrote in my notes means and not ends. I think that's wrong. Um, <laughs> it's ends and not means, right? Here's another one. The Shabbat is a day of rest, right? Values can also include things we understand as being Jewish values in some ways. Um, there's also a principle which we sh which shows up in the Gemara. Tav lemetav tandu mi lemetav armalu which is a long Aramaic expression, which means that a woman would rather be married to someone than be unmarried, um, which ends up being an important principle in just in kind of uh, interpreting what a woman's status should be in various situations. Um, and that's actually a good example because it gives you a sense that the values are not necessarily going to be agreed upon by everyone. It's not as though, and this also speaks to the question of why is, why is, why is one not just a feature and one is a value, in that there's actually quite a bit of debate about what are these values and what constitutes a value. And sometimes rabbis can have very different ideas about what, and, different, and conflicting ideas about what constitutes a value. Um, so really you, these, really you have to kind of spot these in the text themselves. It's much easier to spot them than to kind of list them all. Um, now, why are these important? Why is it important for rabbis to be thinking about values? Or why can we say that they are appealing to values in their text? Um, partially, it's because the text, I think we could say, would not gain traction unless they were in some way speaking to values that we share. Um, and this starts with the rabbi himself, or the halakha decisor himself. For rabbi, I, I imagine most rabbis do not write texts that fundamentally go against most of their major uh, life values. So they are already kind of imputing to the text themse themselves some of the things that they value, um, and hopefully as well some of the things that the community itself values. Um, as well, just in terms of whether a community is going to respect a rabbi, whether uh, it meant much of this comes down to, um, does the rabbi understand Sorry, does the community understand the rabbi as reflecting their values in some way? Um, if they don't, then it's likely that there will be some split between the rabbis and the community. Yeah. I mean, that, that's certainly how I prefer to view halachic texts, but to me that seems pretty non-obvious. Like, to me, you know, I'm sure I've heard the argument many times that so-and-so halachic authority 
was writing in a vacuum, you know, that was writing according to the norms of whatever and according to the forms of whatever, but you know, not with regard to what else is going on in his world or in the community, aside from the fact that he's answering a question. But you know, he's looking for some like you know, abstract, perfect, ideal answer to this whole question absent contact. Right. Um, I'm going to expand your question a little bit, which is I'm presenting you with this theory of norms, forms, and values. Where am I getting this from at all? Like, am I just making this up? Um, I think the, I think where this has come from, and this is not something which I've invented, um, this comes from um, scholars and Jews of all varieties trying to read a lot of text and trying to understand them. Um, in the best light possible, um, meaning kind of from an empirical perspective, um, looking at these texts and trying to say, what, is, what, is, what, what way of reading this makes the most sense? Um, and I think using that approach, we will often come to um, a sense that reading these sources by only appealing to, pre by saying that the rabbis only appeal to previously standing norms and the forms that they are constrained by, still leaves us with a lot of questions unanswered. So yes, I think there are people who do claim that the values do not enter into this whatsoever. I would argue, I am arguing here, that um, the sources do not bear that out. Uh, the sources actually bear out there's always an appeal to sources, to values of one kind or another. And very often that is, that is made clear by the text themselves. Um, so values can also, just to think about one, one more kind of feature of this, there are values that look backwards, right? What, what have been the historical values of our community, which is important for kind of preserving a sense of continuity as well in the past. But values can also be forward-looking, like we saw uh, at the end last week with Robert Cover, that values can kind, of, can kind of be a bridge to where do we imagine our community to be in the future? Where do we want it to be in the future? Um, legislation, for example, about um, women's status in the community often does not reflect the majority of the society's values at the present moment, but reflects a kind of, this is where we'd like to be. This is where we'd like our community to look in the future. Um, and so rabbis can appeal to either one of those things, sometimes both at the same time. Um, now, what, how do you decide what are Jewish values, right? Because you can make an argument out of this, well, what happens if the entire Jewish community wakes up tomorrow and says, our value is now that we love Jesus? Like, that's, that's just a, a basic core new value. Um, and I would say uh, there isn't really like a safe, feel-good answer to this question, in that, to some degree, we are always reliant on the values of the community that we have. There are no texts which can safeguard us. We are always dealing with other people. Um, and the best we can do is kind of work very hard um, with a sense, I think, of fear of God, of fear of heaven, um, towards preserving continuity and doing our best to um, not make changes that we, that we do feel our breaks. There is no, I think, from a theoretical perspective, there's no reason why um, we can't change everything tomorrow. Um, I think we don't because um, there are things that matter to us quite a bit. Um, I mean, there's, there's a formal argument, too, that things, you can't change everything tomorrow. You know, the idea that you can't go against what a previous generation said. So. Right, right. So, I mean, the, the, the form is one of the kind of checks on that. As are currently existing norms, we can't, it's going to be very difficult to change them tomorrow. Um, what happens, I think, when rabbis make lot of decisions is that they are always make, they're kind of negotiating between these three. How, what do I, what do I want to achieve? How do I use these, how do I negotiate between these three kind of sources of authority? In a way that is going to make what I say authoritative, I mean, often that will often that will involve only appealing to norms. 
there are texts where there's actually, I think, very few values that are in those texts. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, this past weekend, uh, Rabbi Shulman discussed the halachot of um, snow on Shabbat. Snow as being mukta, can you touch it on Shabbat? Can you make a snowball? Can you build a snowman? Um, these halachot, I think, for the, for, for the most part, do not have these do not have very strong values behind them. Maybe you can find a value here and there, but I think for the most part, these are more or less value-less questions. There, what matters more is forms and norms. Um, so you don't always have to ask. Um, what's the role, I have, I'm sorry, mainly in the phone, and maybe I missed this, but what's, what is the role of, like, do you see Torah and Mishnah as being, like, where do they fit in this framework? And those may be different, different things. Yeah, so I talked about it a little bit before. Okay, sorry. Um, I think this is actually, it's helpful, and I'm glad you brought it up again. One of the things that thinking about forms does is it makes historical context very important. Is that instead of historical context actually being a dangerous um, kind of threat to halakha, when you're looking at Torah, when you're looking at Talmud, you actually need to think about, well, how is this text constructed? in order to understand what it is saying. Um, so it actually demands that you use historical analysis as opposed to kind of makes you shy away from it. So it's, it's actually helpful thing. So you would, you would not exclude those texts from No, definitely not. Definitely not. They're, they're important parts of it. Um, OK. Sorry, is what you were asking, would you also subject those to analysis? Of, yes. Right? Yes, that's about, yes. Yes, all texts. I think, I, I think it's actually a matter of principle. You can't exclude a halakhic text from this. Partially because what we're trying to do with this project is um, understand ourselves as part of this tradition, which starts from the beginning. So to exclude a part of the tradition from this kind of analysis, in a way, says you know, we don't have faith that that text is appealing to values. We don't have a, a, any confidence that, say, that is part of our conversation. It's part of a different conversation, which I think is, in some ways, a more frightening prospect. I mean, theoretically, one could say that, like, tours from Sinai and. and you know, but like the, the whole idea that the oral Torah is also from Sinai is, right. you know, you know that that's that's a little bit shakier. For sure. I mean, I mean, for sure, for sure. Um, I would say for written, in, in funny way, we're, we're kind of saved in that our halachic analysis very rarely hinges on the written Torah itself. Um, so those are often the first texts we look at, but we are not usually appealing to them directly when we are thinking about. So what do we do nowadays? Um, I just want to move on. Um, uh, go ahead. Just a quick one. Yes. Yeah. Do you think this analysis can also explain why halachic texts that didn't catch on and aren't really followed as halacha didn't catch on? Like, can you say, well, it didn't, you know, appeal to values appropriately or whatever? Sure. Um, I'll give you an example of an entire group of texts which were not, uh, which did not catch on. These are the Karaites, right? Jewish sect, Jewish sects. Um, disagree with this system in some way. So, for example, for the Karaites, a kind of rejection of rabbinic authority as being an authority independent of Torah, um, as um, saying things that the Torah does not clearly state, to, to way oversimplify what the Karaites say, um, kind of excludes those from this category, even for us today. Um, I think there are many Orthodox Jews who would say that conservative responsa are excluded because they do not appeal to norms as they, as they wish they would be appealed.
appeal to or that they appeal to the um, wrong forms or so, so that is definitely the case. Um, okay, great. Now that we have this whole, this whole edifice of norms, forms, and values, what do we do with this? How does this help us? Does this help us at all? Um, so I have a few suggestions for how this can help us, how this can make us feel better about the text of our tradition. One is this first source that I've given you on the page. Um, so the first thing that values-based halakha, or whatever we choose to call it, can do for you is that it helps you read sources better. Here is a tshuva of Rav Moshe Feinstein about when, sh when shkia is, and how long it is from shkia, that is the setting of the sun, to when the sky actually gets dark. This matters because the time that Shabbat begins and ends is dictated by that gap. Um, and so Rav Moshe Feinstein says, we'll, we'll just read it in the English, but accordingly, not all places are equal with regards to the time of Shkia and Tzedek Chavim. Tzedek Chavim is the time that the stars come out, so like when it's really dark. Since this depends on their respective horizons, and this creates both leniencies and stringencies, meaning Shabbat might end earlier or later depending on where one is located. As a result, here in America, in our city, New York, as well as in New Jersey, and in all summer mountain locations, Catskills, right? <laughs> Where I myself have been to these places, though I have heard that in basically all American cities it is thus, we're, appro we're approximately 50 minutes after Shkia, the whole sky is already full of stars, and it is as dark as the middle of the night. Is this not less than the 17 or more minutes in, dwell uh, in dwellings in Europe? That is to say, he's trying to reconcile the fact that he, he recognizes when Moshe Feinstein was born and grew up in Europe, that in Europe they used to keep 72 minutes between Shkia and the end of Shabbat, whereas in America it seems like the sky is dark 50 minutes later. So, how, so he's trying to, to deal with that principle. So he says, as a result, well, we should keep 72 minutes. Why? Because we want to kind of preserve the practice of our uh, European uh, forebears. Quote, like just a side point. This is a good example of a norm, right? They want to, he wants to keep in line with the norm. However, he says, as a result, those pressed for time may be lenient on Mutzay Shabbat and start doing malacha, that is, like start doing their week, their week uh, activities, after 50 minutes. Even those who are not rushing have no obligation to wait 72 minutes, but ab initio, initially, it is fitting that they delay ending Shabbat a little more than it is strictly necessary, even though it is already permitted to do malacha. Great, very clear response. Um, and he, so, so just trying to uh, apply the framework that we've used before. What are the kind of norms that we see here? What are the relevant norms? We saw, we saw one of them already. That is, in Europe, slash Europeans who have come to America, there is a practice of waiting 72 minutes after um, after Shkia for Shabbat to end. Any other norms that you see here that he's trying to deal with? I don't know if this counts as a norm or a value, but the idea that you know, seeing stars in the sky being dark is a relevant counter consideration to that one. Um, right, so that's that's kind of reality that he's trying to grapple with in this. Um, and you could say, yes, that the there is a, a value in having the halakha match up in some way with our sense of reality. That if I say, oh, Tzedak Kochavim is only after 72 minutes, when clearly I can see tons of stars after 50 minutes, it might confuse people. It might say, well, is Tzedak Kochavim just like words in the air? doesn't mean anything. No, he says, really, it does mean something. But we have practice of keeping 72 minutes anyways. Great. Um, we can also see something about the form of the argument, right? This is a response written by uh, a rabbi living in New York. It is very clear that he's writing from the perspective of a New Yorker, right? He's talking about New York and New Jersey, and he says in the text, New Jersey, right, uh, transliterated, and the Catskills, right, the mountains where people go in the summertime. Um, he, he's not at all uncomfortable locating himself in that way and writing from, from that kind of perspective. Um, 
any values that you see in this text that you want to think about, that you want to talk about beyond that. It doesn't seem like there are so many values beyond this question about um, the gap between the halachic, the halachic de uh, definitions and the reality. Beyond that, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Uh, I would say that values that are present are. Can you speak louder? I would say that the values are that are present are respect of Shabbat, um, and also respecting that people have work to do, um, like the importance of malacha when it's not Shabbat. That's interesting. Um, I didn't see in this juvah in particular a, um, a concern with people have to go back to work on Mosei Shabbat, but I could imagine that, that that is something which other sources are concerned with. Um, you might see it especially with concern about going into Shabbat as opposed to getting out of Shabbat. How, how late can you end your workday on Friday? Those quests for time. Right. So that's on Mosei Shabbat, meaning if it's a question about work, I would think that talking about Erev Shabbat, going into Shabbat, you would negotiate. You would have to negotiate more with. Well, really, how late can you start Shabbat? As opposed to how early can you mention? Right, but the idea is you're pressed for time to do something. Right. Okay. So that's, I mean, that's the counter. Right. 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 Okay. Great. I chose this source because I think it's a, it's pretty clear. Um, this is actually not a difficult source in itself. Um, I just wanted to show you a, a kind of a curious reading of it that I came across online, which I think is, in a funny way, it's like it's fun to laugh at it. Um, but at the same time, it's important in, in thinking about what we're trying not to do. Um, this is from the MyZmoneyM.com website, which, um, if you don't know MyZmoneyM.com, it's a great website um, for telling you exactly when Shabbat starts and ends and all kinds of things. And if you look at how do you have this information, it tells you there's lots of sources for it. Um, and it says, among other things, so how does it, what is Rav Moshe Feinstein's answer to, you know, what time Shabbat starts or ends in, um, you know, Hong Kong? And he says, you know, for Q&A, okay, that's great for New York, right? Because he, he says, okay, the, the, the opinion of Moshe Feinstein is in New York and New Jersey. Motei Shabbat is never later than 50 minutes past Shkia. Okay, that's great for New York, but what does that have to do with everywhere else? The time for Motei Shabbat in any other location can be found by determining the time at which the degree of darkness in the given location matches the degree of darkness that is present 50 minutes past Shkia on a summer day in New York. For example, let us consider Yerushalayim. Using standard astronomical calculations, it can be shown that on a summer day, the degree of darkness that is present 43 minutes past Shkia in Yerushalayim is equivalent to the degree of darkness that is present 50 minutes past Shkia in New York. We can therefore conclude that during the summer, Moses Shabbat in Yerushalayim is approximately 43 minutes past Shkia. Great. So this perspective says, well, Ramosha Feinstein is not just talking about his locale. He's not just making a kind of observation in passing that in the New York, New Jersey, Catskills area, Shabbat um, ends around 50 minutes after uh, after Shkia, or sorry, it's dark 50 minutes after Shkia. But this is a kind of scientific um, approach. 50 minutes is the latest it can be based on New York. And so the Rav Moshe Feinstein approach, quote unquote, to the world's, um, to, to the world's um, question of when the Shkia and when it's Tzedek Kochavim is, well, you do kind of these geometrical calculations based on New York City to the point where, and I think like it's, it's very funny that he uses the example of Yerushalayim, where kind of Yerushalayim is kind of calibrated based on New York. Um, so I like this Chuvai in the sense that I think, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, I think most of us reading Ramosha Feinstein's Chuvai have the sense that he's not trying to present a kind of strict um, mathematical conclusion about when the stars go out. In fact, he says, it's not exactly 50 minutes. It's that by 50 minutes, by the time 50 minutes have gone by, it's really dark. Not, it's a little bit dark, it's really dark. Um, 
So that seems to suggest that he's not going for this kind of very precise approach. However, it's very easy to kind of overread such sources and suggest that there is more there than, 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 there, than would meet the eye. So I think a values-based approach can kind of get you out of this in that it allows you to take into account the form of remote lines in Shuba, the form involving like his historical context um, and not going beyond the exact words that he says. Okay. Um, that's, a, that's one small example. Any questions about that one? So, so this uh, the Maismanim uh, source kind of takes Rav Moshe's seemingly uh, non-exact statement and turn and uses this form that we've been talking about to you know to use that as a previous source and to you know, to to make it into a more exact legal definition that that really in the end the Maismanim Rabbi is. Is, is really making him fabricating himself because Rav Moshe really didn't say that. Great. Right. Exactly. Okay. Um, I have another example of this, but let's move on to something else. One of the other things that a values-based approach can do, I think, is it takes um, halakhic arguments which at first seem quite far-fetched and makes them a little bit more reasonable. And in that way, I think, allows us to sit more comfortably with them. So there's a great tshuva of Rav Moshe Fein, sorry, of uh, Ovadi Yosef, um, who's still alive today. This, uh, this is on page three, source number four. Uh, so Ovadi Yosef is dealing with, and he's a, he's a Sephardi rabbi. I think he was born in Baghdad, grew up in uh, Egypt, and lived in Israel for a very long time. Also has a photographic memory and quotes, quotes halakhic literature like you wouldn't believe. Um, so he has this question before him, which is, students come to Israel for the year after high school. They stay for one year. Now, there's a difference in the customs of Israel and the rest of the world with regards to whether you keep one days or two days of Yantav. So Pesach, for example, in Israel is seven days. Everywhere else it's eight days. Um, Shavuot in Israel is two days. Everywhere else it's one day. So the question is, can a student who comes to Israel for one year, um, does he keep one day of Yantav or two days of Yantav? So Vaji Yosef kind of goes through all the various chuvot uh, that talk about this, and the chuvot kind of, you can go both ways on this. There are, there are people um, who have argued on both sides of this question, that you, a traveler to Israel can even one day or not one day. And this is the end of his chuvot. This is what he says at the very end. In conclusion, a young man who comes to Israel and who is independent of the will of his parents is allowed to observe only a single day of Yantav. So we're thinking about like 18-year-old kids. Even though he intends to return to the diaspora, since we can hope that he will find a woman and make Israel his permanent residence. If, however, he says that he is dependent on his parents, i.e., to return to the diaspora, he should keep two days of Yantav. In any event, it is worth informing him that even if he generally follows his parents' wishes, if he happens to find a fitting spouse who comes with a large dowry and means sufficient that he might make due in Israel, even if his parents would object to this, Technically, he does not need to listen to them, since the mitzvot of reproducing, kuruvu, and of living in Israel are more important than the mitzvah of honoring one's parents, and he should act according to the Torah. If, after telling him all of this, he becomes convinced and says that he is ready for this, instruct him to observe only a single day of Yantav. However, if he responds, sorry, if he responds, that he, even so, he couldn't bring himself to abandon his parents, and that he listens to them in all things, instruct him to keep two days of Yantav according to the diaspora custom. So it's a kind of weird joke. You don't know what to make of it at first. Why is, why is he making this appeal to the hypothetical um, 
uh, you know, life mate for this young man who has this hypothetical rich dad who can give him this hypothetical large dowry, which will hypothetically allow him to stay in his will forever. Why is this relevant for deciding whether you can keep one day's or two days of What do you think? Why, where is he coming from? Where is, why is this part of the discussion? Yeah. The only thing I can think of that makes any sense at all is that he's trying to create a loophole. That absent this loophole, you would have to tell all of these 18-year-old Americans that they have to keep an extra day of Yantav when everyone else in Israel is doing whatever they want the right. second day. So I think your approach is, is to say he's reacting in some way to norms. The norms are there are Americans who come to Israel, many of whom are keeping one day of Yantav, perhaps, um, when they have no basis for doing so or kind of conflicted about it or, or perhaps are doing two days of Yantav but have nothing to do on the second day because the rest of Israel is kind of moving forward and it's a weekday. Um, so in that way, that might be part of uh, the norm that he's responding to. The form, I think, is, is similar to what we've seen before. He is using the responsive form, um, the one that is used in the 20th and 21st century. And, and he has quoted many texts, which I haven't given you here, but many texts to support the approaches. But what kind of values do you see in this? Yeah. I, I thought it was he was saying kind of if, if the kid's really going to remove himself completely from the Israeli community and say, like, I don't want any of this, mm -hmm. then he can't follow their norms. Great. I thought that's what Great. So he, I think that's, I think we're on the right track, and, and he is in some ways, and I think you might have seen this first as well at some point. Um, he's in some way asking the student, well, do you see yourself as being um, an aspiring Israeli citizen, or do you see yourselves as being here for a year, for, for a year? If you're on the jail space in Monopoly, are you just visiting, or are you in jail? I don't mean to compare yourself with you. <laughs> <laughs> my head. Um, and the way of testing this is to say, well, let's say you had no barriers to come to Israel. You had all the money you needed. You had a wife. Would you still come? And if he says yes, then you say, okay, then you then you should keep one day. Um, if not, then then not. So in some ways, what first appears, what a first approach, I think, if you were just looking at norms and forms, you would say this is simply some kind of crazy loophole is, in fact, um, a very careful way of balancing um, the various values in this kid's life, right? He has to think about the value of honoring his parents, which is a serious value. Like, you have to, you have to do what your parents want you to do. Um, on the other hand, you know, he's 18 years old. There is uh, a mitzvah, as, uh, as Ravadi Yosef imagines it, um, of living in Israel. Um, and so he's kind of bouncing these things off. And he actually says this, right? That the mitzvah of producing, of reproducing and living in Israel outweighs the honoring of one, one's parents. So you kind of ask the kid to make the decision. Um, and you use his answer um, to help you. So this is actually a very, it's a beautiful tshuva in a way that it kind of um, gives a legal encoding to these different values. Um, and I think we all feel pretty good about the kid's answer as being relevant. Great. So this is another way I think that these tshuva can be helpful. Let's we'll look at a few more examples. Uh, what did I give you next? Uh, next, I gave you this chuva of Rav Moshe uh, about buying and selling shares. We've looked at this already, so I think we don't need to um, we don't need to look at it again. Um, the point here was simply to, to say again, right? So, in the, in the question of whether uh, Jews can buy can, whether they can buy shares, what are the norms? We talked about Jews are actually buying shares. The forms involved this response. So far, we've only looked at responses, so the forms have been kind of boring. Um, and the values involved, well, let's say, participating in American commerce, um, Jews being prosperous in America, um, but also countering that, that 
the way that they are participating in commerce would actually um, violate basic principles of the religion, including Shabbat. Shabbat was something in other contexts, is something which Jews are say, struggling to keep. Um, I don't remember exactly when Rav Moshe wrote this tshuva, but you can certainly imagine that like, the, the idea of keeping Shabbat, if you are a working person, is not a trivial factor in America at some point in time. Um, so this is a real consideration. Um, and so he's kind of bouncing all these things off. Yeah. Would you say that your format of norms, forms, and values is in some ways a balancing test? Can you say more about that? Um, that you take all these things into consideration, and depending on how heavily they weigh, that will that will make your decision go in a certain direction or not. Whose decision? As a halakhic decisor. So the, the author will weigh just the two author. Things Right. That there's an implicit balancing test going on, either between values, between multiple values that are going on, or between the values and the norms and the form. Like, if there is a balancing test, is yeah. it all three of the elements, or is it just between the values? Right. So I think he's always negotiating between, and say he right now, always negotiating between these three. Um, I think very rarely will any of those three be left out entirely. I think for the most part, I think like the example I gave earlier of snow is maybe like a rare example of where there are no values at all. Or give you an, another short example, um, there are halachot about whether orange peels are mukta or not mukta on Shabbat, whether you can kind of handle orange peels on Shabbat. This, I think, is something which has very few, there's very few values in it. Um, it's kind of a formal exercise. Um, most of the time, it is a balancing act, yes, between these three. But it's not a question of, do I pick door number one, number two, number three? You're always picking all three doors. And it's a question of trying to, um, trying to write a shuva that kind of respects all of them um, in the way that the Allah decides are using all of his creative and uh, all of his creative energies and all of his knowledge of Torah, uh, the best answer that he can give. And yeah. sometimes one of the two of those three will will conflict, and you have and the, the author will have to figure out how to negotiate that. And sometimes two of the three will be synergistic and will help each other. Yeah, exactly. And and so sometimes you will see that in the writings of a single author. So I think Ovadio Say, for example, is kind of balancing off these different values of, on the one hand, kind of listening to your parents, but on the other hand, living in Israel. Um, some response that only reflect a certain only reflect a certain range of values. Um, so something we talked about last time is that Moshe Feinstein, in talking about uh, stockholders, does not talk about unethical practices. He's not. That's kind of not on his radar. He's not thinking about the value of only um, investing in ethical uh, business practices. Um, I think it would be overreading him to say, well, he thinks that's totally fine. He thinks you can invest in you know, any company, and that's fine. Um, it seems that he's just um, thinking about something else. And that's important as well in kind of uh, being in conversation. Like, let's say you were going to write another tshuva, which did respect that. You probably wouldn't quote um, Ramosha Feinstein as being for investing willy-nilly in all companies. You would say, he's thinking about this set of ideas, and we're thinking about some other set of ideas. Um, and maybe there's a new tension between thinking about, on the one hand, um, being involved in commerce, even though most of commerce does not abide by Jewish law, and at the same time, being only involved in commerce that abides by ethical practices. And that would be another kind of tension. Is there a question? So, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so confused. Uh, when, you, when you have a problem with the title values-based halacha for this, these two classes, right. is, 
Is your problem with it that you feel like the values base is concerned with only one of the three considerations? Right. Um, yes. I think it, it advertises maybe the most interesting part of it, but it doesn't advertise the whole package, yeah. So are you making the argument that going forward we should be privileging values in our interpretation of Palaka, or um, do you I'm, really want to be like kind of neutral? Yeah, so I'm making two arguments. Okay. Um, because there's two questions. One is, how do you read the sources in a way that is satisfying? Okay. And the other question, which is something which we haven't really talked about yet, is how do you write sources which are satisfying? Um, right now, we're only talking about how do you read sources in a way that is satisfying. That is important because I think a lot of the sources that we find in the past, you know, 2,000 more years of Halakhic literature can feel very alienating. They can, they can feel like they were reflecting a society which is very different from ours. Um, and this is a way of kind of reconciling them for us. Um, to use a values-based approach. Correct. Um, and so what this does is it helps recognize both, it helps us uh, kind of interrogate both what are the values of that particular decisor, but also, you know, where are they coming from? What is the restrictions on their form? Um, and the reason, the reason I think, just to kind of reverse the question is, why is it important not just to say values, but also to talk about forms and norms? Um, partially because if it's simply values, then there are lots and lots of ways where I can, which I can express my values, and many of them don't require me writing any halakhic text whatsoever. They just involve me living my life in whatever way I want to live it. So the forms and the norms are, are in some ways, um, distinctively Jewish. They, they help identify it as being part of a tradition um, as well. Um, it also, just to add one more thing, is it says that there's, there is nothing obsolete about the older forms. It's not like they had to restrict themselves to a particular kind of language. We can just talk, you know, it's fine. Um, we also have responsibility, and this gets to the, the part about halakhic writing, we also have responsibility to negotiate between norms, forms, and values, and to kind of write future halakhodes. I'm not saying we in this room, people who are kind of qualified well to in halakha. Um, on the basis of a similar reading of the past, but also to negotiate with those three things for the future. So like the conservative response to that, yeah. they are writing in a way with attention to kind of norms and forms, but their responses are still ignored for the most part by the orthodoxy. Right. So, I mean, it's not like writing with with respect to certain norms and forms guarantees you entrance to any particular I guess it I guess it does put you in dialogue. At least you you might feel like you're in dialogue even right. if others might not right. choose to participate in that dialogue. Right. I mean so many conservative responses I mean are written for certain, for a particular audience. Like right. They kind of recognize um, that they are attempting to gain the authority of, say, the conservative movement, this conservative denomination, as opposed to all Jews everywhere. Although I would say, like, there are definitely conservative rabbis who, at least in theory, would like to be heard by everybody. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I think it might, in some cases, it might be political considerations outside of the content structure of the tshuva right. that prevent it from, you know, like, might have compelling norms, forms, and values, but still not catch on because. It's not written by a compelling person, according to the person, yeah, according to people not catching on with. Um, the other reason I would emphasize it, and if you can skip to page number seven, source number nine, um, it's a very short source. Um, so the Gemara talks about, this is source number eight, but we're not going to go through it. Source number eight talks about um, basically the source for women covering their hair. 
um, the way the source is written, um, both the Mishnah and the Gemara, suggests that it is speaking about married women, that married women should cover their hair. Rambam, however, Maimonides, um, seems to me, says right out, it's not just married women who have to cover their hair, but all women have to cover their hair. Right? Doesn't matter if you are single or if you are married to somebody, all women have to cover their hair. Um, and uh, one of my teachers, uh, Rav Bigman, uh, went over the source of this, and he, he gave a kind of analysis of this, which I think is helpful here. Which is he says, there's a kind of couple ways of dealing with the source. Let's say, let's hypothesize that um, this was the halakha masa. This is what people did these days. That people nowadays, uh, both women and um, married and unmarried in the Jewish community, um, cover their hair. And let's say you were of the opinion that you didn't think unmarried women should have to cover their hair anymore. How would you write a tshuva that, um, that affected that change? There are a couple ways of doing it. One way is to say, Rambam lives in a Muslim society, several Muslim societies. In Muslim societies, for a very long time, hair covering is something not just incumbent upon married women, but it's, it's incumbent upon unmarried women as well. As a result, we can kind of discard Rambam as being unduly influenced by his cultural surroundings, and we can go back to Gemara, or we can go to texts which are not written in Muslim societies. We can kind of discount those as being unduly influenced. That response, I think, does not properly um, appeal to Rambam's values, meaning reading the source in that way replaces values with something else, like um, political influence or outside religious influence. I think to read Rambam in terms of values there would be to do the second reading, which is to say, what is Rambam doing? Rambam has this idea of tsniut, of modesty. What does modesty mean? Modesty means different things in different settings. And it might be that if you are living in a society in which women, the vast majority of women, are covering their hair, then for you, your notion of modesty means covering your hair too, regardless of whether you are married or unmarried. And so Rambam is not to be discarded, but rather Rambam is supposed to be understood as um, applying this value of modesty, um, which is actually um, which is actually much larger. And so he's giving what it means in his society, um, but we are not ignoring Rambam to suggest that in today's society that should no longer be the case. And that would be to read Rambam in terms of in terms of his value. Um, it's a little bit after eight, so I think, a little bit after seven, so I think we can stop here.